0: Hi, I'm Ahmad And hi, I'm Steve And welcome to Exploration Radio Our last episode focused on what makes a successful explorer In that episode we interviewed Mark Bennett A geologist with over 20 years of experience in mineral exploration Who in his career has been involved in no less than four mineral discoveries The first part of the interview focused on Mark's time at WMC What made WMC so good, especially as a training ground If you missed the episode, here's a short recap
1: Well, to actually sort of expand on that a bit in terms of talking about hypocrisy. After the event, there was a safety meeting and the main item on the agenda was petitioning the local council in Melbourne to install a pedestrian crossing so that the accountants could get to work safely and my near-death experience was deemed not worthy of actually discussing because it was deemed a disease and not a safety incident. The more we're perceived to be boffins, the less seriously we tend to be taken, and I I sort of had a sense of awareness of that in in some of my past companies, but it was only when I started running my own companies and speaking to the finance guys in the outside world that I really realised how prevalent that sort of attitude is.
0: This week's episode is part two of the interview with Mark. We really dig into how Mark ended up developing the culture that ultimately led him to success. We discuss the discovery of NOVA, that really marks the culmination of Mark's development of an explorer culture. So come join us, what makes a successful explorer, with Mark Bennett.
2: So Mark, we have to talk a little bit about Sirius, so let's start at the beginning.
3: One of the things that I think that you did that was remarkable is that you did the deal with Mark Creasy. That is the story to me of the discovery, is that you unleashed an ability to explore, which nobody else has been able to do. And we hear stories about the discovery, and we don't need to go over there again, because that's still some brilliant geology,
1: brilliant exploration. But you did a deal with Mark Creasy, That's Tell us about that. Probably less uh, less special than it sounds,
3: really. <laughs> so I'll give you context. Um, I've met Mark a few times. Yeah, and one of the yeah. things that I know that he respects is that you had been a successful explorer that you've made discoveries. That was really, really important. Um, it's not that he looks down, but he, he views that as being the key criteria for, for doing deals. So you had respect, like, from day one,
1: yeah, and Mark, Mark's a very intelligent guy, and although he's not trained as a geologist, he knows more geology than a lot of geologists, and, and he tests them as well, uh, which can be quite interesting. So I guess I've, I've never actually discussed with him any of this, so I'm sort of guessing myself, but I, I would assume that you know if he was going to basically hitch his personal ground and their future to somebody he'd want somebody who had a good track record of doing things which sure. I can understand but again there are, there are a few people around like that and I think this is where it comes down to some of those simple things again in that it's, it's a person to person thing Mark's also quite unconventional and anti-establishment in a number of ways Yeah. so he, he wouldn't be attracted to, you know, a highly corporatised type of geologist approaching him to do things. So my somewhat informal approach probably resonated with him a bit, perhaps. No, definitely, I would say. That would be my Um, outsider's viewpoint. And I guess what's probably not so obvious is at that point, he could have had every reason to not want to have anything to do with me at all because Mark was a major shareholder of Apex Minerals that, that basically was a corporate disaster and lost a lot of money and I was a director of Apex Minerals at that time but despite that he, you know, was prepared to, uh, to show faith in that and part, part was luck as well, juxtaposition of timing and everything else in that he was at a point where he'd held on to his private ground holdings for a long time. And that's why other people haven't been able to, to sort of access that. Yeah, yeah. But he was at a stage in his life, I suspect, where he realised that they needed a good shake. And the best way to do that was to put it in a public vehicle rather than do it himself. And, uh, and in that sense, I, I may have just come along at the right time uh, to do that. So the start of Sirius, you know, Mark owned 30, 30% or thereabouts. We'd taken the pick of what we thought were the best bits of his ground holdings around the state. And uh, we, we had a very clear game plan as well and I think that was important. You know, as a, as a small exploration company, it's an insecure living with a lot of uncertainty. You don't know what's going to be happening two, three, five years down the track and there's a temptation for those in those companies to, to hang on to the money as much as they can to make the thing last as long as possible. But if you're going to do that and not spend it on drill holes, you're never going to find anything. Whereas, by way of contrast, for various reasons, our game plan from the start was basically okay. We'll take your assets, we'll put them into a company, we'll raise $10 million, we'll do high-risk, high-reward Greenfields exploration, we'll give ourselves a three-year time frame. Uh, to spend that money, and we'll spend it in that time frame. And if we get to the end and we've run out of money, that's it. We'll do or die trying. So, from his perspective, there was certainty that something was going to happen. Yeah. Same in, in other public companies, if, if investors sense that, they'll back you. Uh, as I've found repeatedly, fund managers, if they sense that you're just going to dither, and as a result, an outcome might be delayed or compromised, they're not interested, but if they sense that you're just prepared to give it a good shake, even understanding that the odds of success are minimal, they're prepared to to back it and that was probably part of the subconscious sort of process that went on at that time.
3: We have to talk about Nova a little bit. My favourite story from Nova was you driving through the night to the portable XRF ray the scene. I mean that says so that says Mark Bennett to me. So sort of slightly crazy, slightly um, just passion. I mean, is there elements of that story I mean what were you doing on the rig? Because your job. But what why not why wasn't someone else there? Was it just rostering
1: or what was the story? Well well bear in mind we were Two years and ten months into our three years. Yes, yeah, so you're running out of money. Running out of money, I had to sort of lay people off, and there was me, a junior geologist, and a couple of part time people t- taking care of the office. That was it. And we got to the point where there was no one else to do stuff. And whilst we'd been drilling some gold prospects elsewhere, we'd been sort of systematically putting what became Nova together to the point where everything looked too good to be true. And we knew that running out of money, this was our one big last roll of the dice. And usually if something looks that good, then it, it isn't true. But it got to the point where we said, okay, we have to, we have to find out now for better or for worse with you know, one in a thousand chance of success or whatever it generally is. And that's why I was there. Did you believe, or did you just want to see it yourself? You wanted to be there. Was there some sort of sense of that, or the, the sort of preliminary work to to end up with a drill target to drill it over? It sort of happened over a twelve-month period or so, and we thought it looked pretty good. By the time we got to coming to drilling it, we knew that this was it. This was going to be the last ever drilling program, and so at that point, it sounds bit strange but you reach a point mentally where you think okay I've done everything I can control to make this happen I have no control over the next bit so you stop stressing and you just relax and so I I actually remember driving out before we drilled that hole feeling quite relaxed and just sort of thinking uh, you know okay rather than trying to swim strongly in a current I'm just going to lie on my back and drift and see what happens got out there and drilled a hole and it uh, and only happened. So did you think it was nickel
3: or did you, you know, as the story gets told, you drove through the night to confirm it was nickel and as we well know, it's hard to identify Pellandite and, and fading light. Some people don't like to admit it, but it's, that's very real. Absolutely. Char- characteristic.
1: Yeah. Did you think it was nickel? I thought it was, I hoped it was, but given what the stakes were at the time, in that it was literally the making or breaking of the company, and the fact that we, that day received a letter from the ASX basically saying, we don't think you're a going concern, so we might be delisting you. I I thought it was nickel, but I wasn't prepared to let anybody know I thought it was nickel until I definitely knew it was nickel. And even though, you know the textures in the rocks look right; they look like magmatic sulfides, even though I could see chalcopyrite, which is usually a pretty it good sign. The stakes are so high, I could could not afford to make the wrong call. So uh, my Land Cruiser is a, a not a a, a tradeback; it's a station wagon with seats in the back. So I literally got all the RC samples and filled them up, and the entire seat in the back was was just full of samples. Yeah, and that was probably. I don't know, mid-afternoon by the time I'd I'd left sight, and literally driving into the sunset to the west and then uh, night fell as I was about halfway there and Sirius rose. Oh, for real? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, got back to Perth sort of just after midnight. Um, Um, We didn't have an XRF gun to check anything, but Creaser did. So first thing the next morning, I went round to his place with the samples and we started sapping them. And that's when, you know, we were getting readings of 4 to 8% nickel and 2 to 5% copper bag after bag of of RC samples. And uh, there were probably about four of us, I think, there on on that occasion. And three of us had big smiles on our face. And Creasy was just sitting in the corner looking miserable. I said, you know, this is pretty good. Cheer up. He said, the last time I was happy was in 1976. (laughs)
2: Coming up after the break, lots more, including what the discovery of Nova meant to Mark and his team, why having skin in the game is important in mineral exploration, and how to do exploration in big companies. So as an explorer, we obviously all live for that moment, you know, the moment that we know we found something. Going back to the three of you sitting in Creasy's office... Did you, did you think that you had it? Did you think that was it? The thing that you've been working for for your whole career?
1: We knew it was it, which is somewhat foolhardy because that, that first hit was just four metres at 4%. But that, we just knew it. And so I, I wrote the first announcement, new new discovery, new deposit style, new province, which is a pretty bloody bold statement to make for, for Australia. But we just knew it was it. Partly... I guess because we had confidence because the geophysics was so good, we had a, yeah. a booming so conductor. Yeah. we would just drilled the edge of it and, and if it was WYSIWYG you could expect this much. There were some doubters originally, I was at Diggers and Dealers two weeks later and there were a couple of people insinuating that we were we were crooks of some sort or another. For real? Yeah. Well, there,
3: there was with voices as well remember, yeah. every time someone makes something significant there's uh, always there. Yeah. The concept has yeah. to, to be, be true, true. Yeah. concept. Yeah. Yeah. So the, to story the story
2: of
0: Voices
3: goes that um, a lot of them believed that they'd taken all from Sudbury and they were showing oil, um, samples from Sudbury rather than samples from Voices Bay.
1: But, you know, whenever I think about it and the other guys think about it, it, it still sends shivers down our spine because it wasn't just the, the actual discovery, it was the implications of it. For the prior two months, we have had some stockbrokers sensing blood in the water in that they saw we were running out of money and proposing as as these nice guys do that they'd raise some money for us to help us out but it was going to be deeply discounted and essentially they end up controlling the biggest chunk of the company and if we'd have given in to to that then even with the discovery the the effects of that would have been as leveraged as they were but because we resisted that and because it was really the last roll of the dice, we, it, it, was the, it was the buzz of the discovery, was the fact that it was something potentially really big. But the fact that all these guys who were our shareholders and a lot of little mums and dads, not, not big instos, were suddenly going to be millionaires. And I reckon we probably created about 100 to 200 millionaires through that process. So much so that when we discovered Bollinger as the, as the next bit, we were getting crates of Bollinger champagne delivered to the office by people we'd never met.
2: Yeah. You've been fortunate enough to have success a number of times. How satisfying was Nova? Was it more, less than
1: before? Oh, well, for a whole bunch of reasons. Partly, you know, it was just another sort of any southern league in terms of what we found compared to previous things. Uh, partly because of the circumstances only saved the company and. And it rewarded everybody who'd had faith in us. Partly because it was so so different. And as, as Steve would know, you know, it's, you get gold deposits all over the place. You don't get big magmatic sulphide deposits all over the place. So it's pretty special when you find one of those. Also, partly, not that this is the main driver by any means, but the fact that we, were, we owned part of the company this time, we weren't just working for somebody else who was going to benefit. I'm a
3: big believer in the whole skin in the game um, concept. I really do believe that you are so motivated by when you have something that's involved in the company. I know it's a a standard line, but one way to put it is if you're running like a $100 million expiration budget for a big company, you've got no skin in the game, it's very easy to spend $100 million without asking the question if it was your $100 million. And I honestly believe that I could do more with ten million dollars of my, if I had my own involvement, than I could do with a large company budget of a hundred million. I think a lot of these budgets are, are wasted by a simple lack of understanding of the value of the skin and the gummy, and geologists who are actually spending, who have fiscal responsibility and understand that they've got to spend their money wisely, mm. and still be adventurous and still take the risks that are necessary. That's what being an entrepreneur is all about.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. With bigger exploration budgets, there is there is wastage. Nice. There's this sort of, not deliberate, but there's this sort of unconscious thing that happens that you can afford to drill a hole in the wrong place because you've got plenty of others you can drill or whatever it might be. Or you can spend $10 million on an exploration cap rather than 100000 and it makes a huge difference. And these guys here, not just you know, in four companies, some of these guys have been with me now, and one of the things we say is, well, you've got to remember, it's you're spending other people's money. That's right. And if you expect them to give you more, they want to sh- want to see that you're spending it well. So, being really judicious with your expenditure, thinking hard about how you spend it, not having any of the trimmings, trimmings, uh, all of that is really important, and you you do view it subconsciously is your own money, and you do deploy it much more efficiently because of that. You and I have known each other for a while. One of the things I've seen is you like
3: a sense of fun. That's a key element of who you are and the culture you have. These people don't just want to go and explore. They, they like the culture that you have. They like the work environment that you create. Is that true? Yeah, yeah
1: that, that's very true. And when did that start? Oh, it started a long, long time ago, I think. In, in, the... in WMC? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because okay. I can remember Lionel
3: coming around to play indoor cricket at Lionel yeah. or on Friday <laughs> afternoon. Like really serious explorers, really determined to make a difference, but still with a sense of camaraderie. I reckon the team makeup and how to get the best out of people. Like this psychological stuff is the stuff that isn't talked about enough. Yeah. We don't talk about it. It's almost as if it's too emotive for us to consider as scientists. You
1: know, not just scientists. I think corporately as well.
3: I thought, you and Peter Barton worked really well at Lionel. I always got the impression that you could do nearly what you wanted. You were building a culture in Lionel. In,
1: in the exploration group, yeah, as no, opposed to the company. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah, sure.
3: As exploration geologists, they all had the same... I mean, if I ring up Will Dix and ask him for some words, or Adrian or Bill Power, whoever you want to do, they're all going to say the same thing. That's <laughs> a good thing, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, I think so. Um, in exploration, it's a very creative process. You want creative individuals, and creative individuals are often slightly oddball in one way or another, and, and difficult to force into a corporate mould, which is another reason why I think they work better in smaller companies rather than big companies. It, it, in some ways it's simple. We, we spend most of our waking lives at work, and if you want people to do special things and perform, then they've got to be motivated and enjoy what they're doing and if you force them into a situation that isn't enjoyable it's just not going to happen.
3: If you could go back and look at the difference between WMC, Lionel, to Apex in particular, is that the evolution of Mark Bennett getting more
1: space to create his own culture? My approach started back in WMC, in a big company and as I've essentially gone down the food chain company-wise From WMC to to Lionel, through Apex to Sirius to this, I've listened and looked and learned and tried to retain the good stuff about the big companies, but get rid of all the other nonsense that often comes with big companies. And as I've been fortunate enough in my own companies to be able to be the one who can make that decision rather than live with somebody else's culture, that's what's enabled that to proliferate. And that's what's recruited a lot of other people and, and works really well. I'm very sort of anti-establishment and and, and unorthodox in a number of ways, so I've never ever read a management book and I would never ever read a management book because I think it's nonsense. Uh, Because most of what we do is just common sense. Don't need it wrapped up in big, long words by somebody else. And the common sense is really, you know, obviously it's a given You've, you've got to be competent at what you do. But what makes the difference is if you're committed to what you do and if you're enabled to actually do it by the circumstances, so if you can get those things right, it'll make a huge difference. And yeah, we we have fun, we're informal, there are very few rules, there are arguments. But that could be seen by some as being unprofessional, or perhaps not very good at your job, but it's actually quite the opposite. What we've tended to find is, is with a number of people in some companies that take themselves very seriously. They think it's, it's, it's the suit they're wearing that determines how clever they are or, or how accomplished or powerful they are. And it's often not the case. And, for example, I might not win friends in Vancouver by saying this, but the juniors in Vancouver are characterised by sharp people in sharp suits that look very professional, speak all the language, but actually don't have that much substance underneath.
2: You've mentioned the word being enabled a couple of times. That's an important part in you being able to do what you want to do. Do you think your earlier success allows you that access? Or when was the first time that you were enabled to do what you wanted to do in the company? Would it be Lion Ore? Lion
1: ore certainly, with it being a smaller, hungrier company at the time, because at the start of Lion Orr, Lion Ore had only just taken over Forestonia Gold, which was a small Perth junior and it had a market cap of about 4 million, so it, it thought like a junior. And it depended, for its survival, on success. So that galvanises everybody into making it happen. And because of that, you know, it, it's, uh, we had one success and then that snowballs. That gives you the, the credibility with others and, and the ability to, to go on and, and then do another one and another one and another one and so on. Interestingly with, with um, Lion or that grew very quickly and I actually witnessed the whole life cycle of a company Yes. and I witnessed it go from that small entrepreneurial company and gradually morph into a different company where people came in and had spreadsheet driven uh, measurements and unrealistic expectations. Towards the end, I remember somebody saying to me, "So, are you going to be able to discover a million tons of nickel metal every year?" And I said no, and it wasn't long after that that they they basically abandoned exploration, and then uh, else came in and bought the place. So I don't think a lot of people realise that um, that
3: Lionel was essentially in decline and showing the signs of, of what happens when companies grow before the takeover. That disguise the fact that Lionel were already in that mid-tier syndrome of we've grown big and now we don't know how to grow. We don't know how to sustain this culture. We've, we're basically yeah. going to run this company now.
1: Yep, <laughs> they were uh, a victim of their own success. It, they were, uh, and that's one of the key things with growing an organisation: is the new people. If you, if you don't if you don't have the same culture, it obliterates the the startup culture, and it, and it becomes doomed.
3: Big companies, that sounds like we should talk
0: about big (laughs) companies. Now,
3: I know some of your views on this, but one of the things I'd be interested to know is, and I've thought about this very deeply, and I've had a couple of experiences now, lack of success in big companies, where, how do you think exploration can work in big companies? And if you were going to run a big company in exploration, what would you do that's different to the way it's
1: being done? I think it's harder in big companies, but I think it can be done, and I think the Anglo-American example sort of hints at that. The key thing is, is is whether you have support at a board level or not. If you've got support, it can be done in big companies, if not, no chance, or in any other company for that matter. So it's very dependent. You can have an army of really good geologists and explorers if they don't have that support with a key person, who has credibility with the board yeah. and strength of personality to put their case, it all goes to waste. Yeah. So it can be done with big companies, it's harder, but also I think it can change very quickly within big companies as well, because it, it's, you're dependent on one person in one position, yeah. and if that changes. So
2: they go yeah. So does that come back to your concept about being enabled to do So Do you need that enabler in a big company? It's, it's the most important
1: thing whether it's a big company or a small company, you know, in, in a big company your customer, the person you're asking for money from will be in one sense the exploration manager or the GM or ultimately the board who decide where to stick the funds. In a small company it's exactly the same except you're speaking to a bunch of fund managers or, or retail investors rather than people within the company for exactly the same thing. So. If the person responsible for championing the cause of the explorers is able to do that, that person, whether it be an exploration manager or an MD of a smaller company or whatever, is the key thing in in, in making the difference.
3: Would you ever work for a big company ever again?
2: (laughs) I very much doubt it. Uh, (laughs) Somebody
1: actually asked me, you know, they were talking about culture and uh, whether I would go into a big company to try and change the culture but I think that is such a monumental task that you'd probably go insane or, or die trying well uh, I've got the scars to prove that I tried one of the problems I have is I
3: almost look back at the past and I caught the very end of WMC in the decline and I, I still got many elements of the positive culture but I know that it was the end and I hadn't seen it think comparable since so trying to recreate this is motivating trying to, to actually succeed is proved to be very difficult very very difficult uh,
2: what are positives that you see in a big company exploring do you think there are any
1: i don't think it's just a big company little company thing it, it, it's the culture that comes with it so uh, in a wmc big company culture mm-hmm. it's very positive mm-hmm. in some other companies that I'm not going to mention um, is probably nowhere near as, as, as positive. I, I just think it's very hard for big companies because, and I see it in all sorts of little ways, so, and this might seem totally unrelated, for example, but doing a native title agreement. And I know a number of Aboriginal guys really well through this sort of process, and many of them have said to me, we'll talk with you guys, because you're the boss. And it's not just because you can make decisions because you're the boss. It's because you're showing us the respect to come out as the boss to talk to us. Yeah. And the bigger the company and the more layers there are, the, uh, the harder that is. And there's a, a company, a mid-tier company, for example, that has engaged with some Aboriginals I know. And they've sent their sustainability manager out there to talk to them. And he's responsible for, you know, community relations, heritage, environmental stuff and so on. And these aboriginals are very insightful. They said to me, that's interesting, isn't it? We're now considered the same as flora and Ah, fauna.
2: Coming up after the break, the last bit of our interview with Mark Bennett. For those of you out there that may be inspired by Mark's talk about mineral exploration, Stephen and I wanted to give you some recommendations for books, either on mineral exploration or dealing with topics that are relevant within mineral exploration. So, in no particular order, here are our top five. Number one, The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. Although this book is really about statistics, it really hits at the heart of exploration geochemistry, but also exploration in general. Number two, Fire into Ice, Charles Fipke and the Great Diamond Hunt by Vernon Frolick. This book is about the discovery of the diamond mine called the Caddy and the guy who discovered it, named Chuck Fipke. Number three is the discovery of Olympic Dam by David Upton. This book shows that even the best projects ride a roller coaster of excitement and doubt. Number four is the Invisible Gorilla by Christopher Chabris and Daniel Simons. This book shows that it's always a lot easier to explain things in hindsight. And last, at number 5, The Conquest of Copper Mountain by Forbes Wilson. This book is about the discovery of Grasberg, one of the largest base metal deposits in the world. So what did you think about our list? Let us know on Facebook and Twitter. If you did like our list, please send us through your suggestions on those two platforms as well.
3: I'm really fond of the Rio Tinto way of talking about sociology before geology or the concept that social access and social license is crucial. Those are skills that geologists have to have. We're the first people to go into any location and we have to be social beings. So part of what I look for when I'm recruiting people these days in some ways it's the skills that I don't have myself but one of the things I look for is Sociability. I look for people to have the capability of talking to, to other people and our awareness,
1: the diversity of people. Yep. What do you look for? What do I look for in the people? Mm. With the, uh, the sort of geology side as a given, yeah. passion for a start, that determines whether people really care and do the extra stuff that makes the difference. And, you know, we have people right now standing out on a salt lake in in a foot or two foot of water doing a 16 hour day, unable to sit down. (laughs) And they're prepared to do it, and they do it day after day after day because they believe in it and they have a passion. So, you you know, in some organisations, that just wouldn't happen. So that's hugely important. Communication. People have got to be able to communicate. And and again, one of uh, many other sayings is, is that it's what's not said that's most important, because in, in an organisation where you feel you're going to be uh, going to be censured in some sort of way for, for saying something uh, that someone might not like, it just doesn't get said, and that's often the important stuff. So here, and it's serious, we, we always made a point of ensuring that people feel sufficiently comfortable and trusting of everybody else, that they can actually say what they think or shout what they think and have an argument and tell the manager to bugger off and we think that's really important because if if a manager can't take criticism they, then they shouldn't be managing anybody people will have our arguments and the key thing is I think is because of that we get to a resolution whereas otherwise you might not and rather than formal hierarchical organisational structures we don't have that either. This This organism sort of behaves like a big dysfunctional family and like a big dysfunctional family people have arguments rows every now and again but they kiss and make up and move on and the glue keeps them together and that's what makes it so so strong i think so that ability to communicate is important humility is important as well and we were talking about sort of pride and intellectual arrogance earlier you know, if, if somebody's just arguing a point because they need to be right, it, it's not healthy. People need to feel able to, to say someone might have a more valid opinion or they got something wrong. But again, without fear that there's going to be a consequence for it. So all of those things. And just being real people as well. And that filters down through all of these sort of relationships, whether you're talking to the local pastoralist or, or the local aboriginals. Or somebody at the laboratory you use or whatever it is if, if you just have good relationships with people it makes all the difference so it's it, it, it's really sort of basic common sense really as I see. I want
3: to talk about mentors there isn't a day that goes by at the moment where someone doesn't talk to me about the lack of mentoring and there's two schools of thought one is that um, we all have mentors they weren't formalized in the old days and some see the need to have more formal mentors and i guess i believe that mentors are sort of organic they're people that you find they find you and there is no formal process and it doesn't even need to be in the same company i mean who mentored you who do you look at oh there are a number
1: of people but but back then it was they were accidental mentors and, and there wasn't really an awareness of a formalized mentoring process if you like but the structure was such that there were a lot of people around who could just chance upon being mentors without any planning out. So there were a number of people and events I think that were important in that regard. Firstly, my geology teacher inspired me. Secondly, the guy who interviewed me to, to do my undergraduate geology degree was, was a mentor and he actually bent the rules and allowed me to get into university to do, to do the course without the appropriate qualifications. Uh, and then sort of mentored me after that. Then in WMC, probably Chris Bonwick I'd pick on most of all, because Chris was just uh, an absolute enthusiast, uh, which you need to be if you're going to be an explorer. And then latterly, Roy Woodall. Then in an entirely different way, more recently an Aboriginal guy I know called Tony Shaw, who I work with from time to time, I developed a relationship with him and learnt a whole variety of stuff from him that I would have had no chance of ever understanding otherwise. So I think those those people in particular and probably most recently a couple of people in the, in the financial world who through the good fortune of having NOVA I got connected with and, and that sort of gave me a whole new education and opened up a whole new world that I would never have even been aware of otherwise.
3: Do you all just understand the need to find money, obviously, to yes. produce, so they are able to do what they do, yes. but is that, do people enjoy it? Is it a necessary skill to want to learn how to raise money and
1: to, to actually like it? To have that commercial understanding is important if you want to get to a position in a company to be able to influence the, the way that company operates yep. for the benefit of yourself and, and all the other geologists in that company. But also if you want to try and do it on your own in your own company then it, it, it's a must. Now, like many things you can sort of do things okay, uh, you can do them well but it's only a small proportion of people who can do things really well. And, um, you know, you as a, as a geologist running a small company you can go and raise money, sure, but the uh, without really having lived it, been down the alleys and punched and kicked and seen how that world really operates uh, you can get taken for a ride big time so actually living in that world, understanding the creatures that inhabit it and the mentality <laughs> and the motivators yeah. and fighting fire with fire, you can actually operate within that world in a way which is beneficial to your company and your shareholders and and therefore all the geologists in your company as well. So that's a huge difference between, as a company you might make a discovery, you might be able to get some finance and you might have an okay outcome at the end of the day, but to have a brilliant outcome really depends on those things that happen subsequent to that discovery and particularly the financing
2: side of things. Were there managers in your career that gave you that importance of being rounded in different skill sets or is that something you picked up along the way? Again, interestingly and somewhat unconventionally,
1: I think my career with, with WMC, I you was know, an exploration geologist, I was a mine geologist, I then got into sort of regional technical evaluations. Then I ended up uh, sort of dabbling with some of the commercial guys in, in Melbourne, doing things. and. On one hand, that was good because you start to see some of the tools that are used, which are helpful. But on the other hand, particularly when I was doing it, there was an obsession with MBAs. I, I, I actually don't regard MBAs that highly. What I've seen is, it's a bit like learning from the book and, and, and learning on the street. Uh, you can learn all the financial principles or, or whatever from, from studying them. but it's only when you're in there doing it and the outcome of your decisions is actually going to make a real difference to you and everybody around you that you really get to learn the ins and outs of it it's a a sort of financial street smartness if you like rather than than pure learning and it often comes down to psychology again at the end the motivators of different people and if you can figure out what different people need or want and why they might might be doing something and what might be a better outcome for you or them and, and you can sort of think your way through it and it's basic human motives most of the time, then you can deal with that a lot better. I've not had any, any formal financial training at all and through Sirius and S2, we've done some of the better deals around in terms of financial outcomes for shareholders.
3: So um, financially, don't need to work anymore. I presume you want to. And I, just to give you some perspective, I've thought about whether to continue being an I haven't been successful, but, but I'm addicted. In fact, I consider this to be an addiction. I want to do this. Are you addicted?
1: To yes. Yeah. yeah. I will never retire. I took two weeks off between Sirius and S2 and got bored, <laughs> and it's the same with everybody else yeah. as well. I think it's a key um, characteristic to
3: be honest, that separates us, you can't really give it up. Yeah. So you're successful, and you still can't come, so success has changed you. Absolutely. You
1: know, we, we've had a number of people ask us, not just myself but all the other guys here, um, okay, you know, Sirius was successful, you made a bit of money, you are going to retire now? And the answer has been unanimously no. And you see the look of confusion on people's faces and because and, uh, they, they don't understand why. And it's because we love what we do. And I think that's why we're successful. It's because we love what we do. If you love what you do, you're going to do it well. And the success will come. And the interesting thing I've found through Sirius particularly is that is actually it, the most important thing being successful in exploration but you need money to do that if you go to the money people <laughs> the first thing they'll ask you is how much skin have you got in the game and at the start of Sirius we didn't necessarily have a lot of skin in the game back then and if if a fund manager or a broker thinks you don't have the same motives of, as them which is to make as much money as possible they'll think you're incompetent and not capable of doing the job and won't support you. If they ask you and you say you do because you love it, you actually risk yeah. losing all of your support from those guys. But the really good thing about Sirius was I always made a point of saying that and those people have seen what that has yeah. resulted in. And so now a lot of people who we rely on as, as investors to fund us Um are there to support us knowing we do it because we love it and they understand that that because you love it you'll do it well and there's a better chance of a good financial outcome and by way of contrasting a previous company Apex I think there was too much obsession on behalf of some with what the the ultimate financial outcome was going to be and they neglected to put enough time and effort into thinking how they would actually get there. <laughs> that's a common disease, that one. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a sort of dual thing in in, in getting support of investors, and people in the financial markets, is you've got to tread this tightrope of ensuring they understand that you're hard-nosed enough commercially to realise and to want to enrich them and the shareholders because that's what you're there for. It's more than that. If you do it because you feel your life depends on it, then you're going to do it
2: well. That marks the end of our interview with Mark Bennett. First of all, we'd like to thank Mark for being our inaugural guest on Exploration Radio. I hope you all enjoyed his insights into what it takes to create a successful exploration culture. Next week on Exploration Radio... We asked the question, what does it take to do exploration in a frontier terrain? We talked to two people involved in the discovery of Rekordig, Dig, a copper gold deposit in southwest Pakistan. We want to find out, aside from the obvious technical challenge, what are other things teams working in frontier terrain should know about? That will be next week on Exploration Radio. So come join us and let's explore.